Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Charlie Grosso today and what it was like to grow up in Taiwan in her early years but move to America when she was only 11 without speaking English. So we talk a lot about that and how that's informed what she's done with her life since. And in particular, her work with adolescent refugees through Hello Future. Make sure you check out the links in the show notes. And if you enjoy this interview, don't forget that there's about 250 others in the back catalog. What we're trying to do with Seeds is get beyond the elevator pitches and go a bit deeper with people to find out about their histories and why they do what they do. You can find out heaps more information at theseeds.nz. And if you're listening in a podcasting app, why not hit subscribe? Now let's get into this interview with Charlie. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Charlie Grosso, who's the founder and executive director of Hello Future. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Stephen. I'm looking forward into this chat. Yeah, no, I'm excited too. We've gotten to know each other over the last few months, and I'm really excited about what you're doing with Hello Future and really keen to understand that in detail. But before we talk about that, I always like to just go back in a time machine and find a little bit about people's journeys, people's stories. So in your case, could we go back to say when you were four or five years old? So what was life like for you and where were you living? And just describe a little bit about that. So I currently um, live in New York City, but um, when I was four or five years old, I was living in Taiwan, Taipei with my family, of course. And I think life was relatively expected unremarkable for, you know, a Chinese, a Chinese you know, single child kid, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what it's was just, like, what was Taiwan like at that time? I've been to Taiwan and Taipei. I, I went for, because I'm a lawyer, I went for a negotiation and um, it was really an interesting place to me. But what was your experience growing up there? So I left Taiwan when I was 11 years old. Um, my parents divorced and they sent me away. Um, my father had my custody, but he didn't really want to raise me. And he didn't want my mother to raise me either. Um, and he thought the easiest thing to do was to be rid of his parental responsibility by sending me to America. Um, so that was how I started in America. So I don't really remember a ton about Taiwan beyond like those, you know, really early years. I don't know. I remember like my parents being really enamored by the the new Western things. Hong Kong was still under British rule. And so like a big deal holiday would be like if my parents got to go to Hong Kong for a few days and enjoy all the metropolitan things and cosmopolitan things that like Hong Kong had to offer, right? Taiwan itself was still, it was moving towards democracy. I think the first democratic vote was in the early 80s. I have some vague recollection of that, Mm -hmm. right? But I didn't really remember, like I didn't know enough to know why that was a big deal. So it wasn't on your and, radar as a child then, that like the relationship with China and all that? Not, like only in the historical part, right? Not in the contentious part, right? Not in the fact that like China wanted us back or China thought that we are part of their territory, right? There were some like intricate um, ethnic things, if you will. Um, so my grandparents, all of my grandparents are from mainland China. They left, they left in either 47 or 49, right? Um, 
with the Nationalist Party, and and they resettled in Taiwan. So even though my parents were born in Taiwan, they're still considered to be Chinese. Right. Even though I'm born in Taiwan in this third generation, I'm considered to be Chinese.、Mm. Right. So the so like the the Taiwanese Taiwanese that occupied the island before forty nine.、Um, Like draws this like really kind of hardline divide between the Chinese and the Taiwanese, right? Which which is kind of like intricate for people who don't really understand the difference between Chinese versus Taiwanese.、Mm. Okay. Um. So so even though like my family's been there for years and years and years, like they would still be like, oh, you're Chinese, right?、Mm. Or um, you know, the few times in which I went back to mainland China, um. They would they would look at me, and they would say, "You're not from here, right?" And then they want to know where I'm from, and and then that gets to be this like weird dance of like, do I say I'm from Taiwan? Like, would they be offended that my grandparents left, or or is America a better answer? Right. It's right? A, it's fascinating. Or, or, so you've got multiple potential identities. Absolutely. Um, so, so it's always weird, like in China, and then it's kind of weird in like Taiwan, right? The Taiwanese have their own like local dialect, right, which is called Taiwanese, which I don't know at all. I, I've spent you know eleven years of schooling there, and I don't speak Taiwanese. It's fascinating. And just tell me a little bit about the history, like your grandparents and and kind of leaving China and coming. Did they talk about that much? Um, no. They're they're not of that generation, right? They're they're、yeah. that generation where we don't talk about trauma, we don't talk about all the things we left behind, we don't talk about feelings very much either, right? Like especially for my maternal grandparents, I think I think it was always about like how do I raise five kids on a single salary,、mm. right? And then by the time they got to having grandchildren, life was easier, but.、Um, But I think that frugality, that survival instinct, still very much so predominate.、Mm. And then you know, the rest of the time, you know, in their retirement, right? My my maternal grandparents passed away late into their nineties, so they had you know like thirty、wow. plus years of being quote unquote retired,、mm. right? So then, for my grandmother, was nurturing her social life,、mm. and for my grandfather, he was a tinker, so he was always in his room like. Making things, fixing things, building things,、mm. learning things. It's really interesting to me, though, because I think we're going to talk with Hello Future about some work that you're doing with people from different countries and things. And I'm just thinking already with your own background, the little that I know so far, you know, you've you've had this experience of moving countries at a young age and and going to new places. Can you just talk us through then, age eleven? Like, what was that like going to America? Um, so the move was、uh, the move was traumatic to say the least. I didn't want to go.、Um, the divorce itself was traumatic. I didn't, even though I went to go live with relatives, I didn't know them because they、right. immigrated like long before I was a thing, you know, before I was an idea. So I got sent to go live with strangers in a country I've never been to.、Uh, I did not speak the language at all. I didn't understand. I didn't understand anything about it. Right, like. America equaled McDonald's and Disneyland, like that was kind of the idea of America,、um, and、um, I didn't get along with my aunt.、Um, she had two children, 
and I went from being the only child to being the middle child. So wow. that was a that was a new dynamic I needed to navigate. Humiliation might be too strong of a word, but you know, like when you're an immigrant and you're put into American schools and they put you in remedial classes. They call it something else now, but it's at the time was called ESL, English as a Second Language. Right. Um, and you know, I was I was top of my class up until then, right? It's suddenly like I'm in these like remedial classes, like learning English, mm. right? Um, the good thing was that I still excelled at math and science, so I, you know, like that didn't change, mm. right? And I was like, well, you guys are still learning geometry. I did this when I was in the fifth grade. <laughs> Wow, it sounds like quite an experience, though. How do you think that's shaped you, that experience at age 11, um, going to a new country like that and not speaking the language and adapting? And Oh, I think, I think all of that. I think all of those years 100% shaped who I am and the, and the work I ended up doing, you know, even before Hello Future. But it definitely, um, it definitely informs, I think, the emotional core of what we do at Hello Future, if not its practicalities. Mm. Yeah. And so what happened next in terms of heading into your teenage years and things? Um, yeah. Were there certain subjects that you were really interested in? And I assume the, the language came, you were young enough to be able to pick it up. <laughs> the language came. Um, I think one thing that really stood out to me was that no one was really interested in getting you out of the remedial class. You had to be interested in getting out of the remedial class, right? Like there was, there was no clear pathway out, right? So you had to advocate for yourself and you had to be like, okay, what do I need to do to be out of here? Because, because you were never going to get into a good college, right? With like remedial English on your transcript. Mm. Right. Um, so that really stood out to me as far as that kind of pathway was concerned. Um, I was, I excelled in math and science, but I was never really into it because I didn't understand what I was going to do with it. Mm. Um, and again, like I think the way school was taught, like they never teach you why you need this information, right? Unless you're like, oh, I want to be a doctor. So then like chemistry is important. Mm hmm. Right. But like, why do I need to learn trigonometry? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, when do I use this knowledge? Um, I was always more interested in the liberal arts, um, English theater, anything that allowed me to either be lost in stories or um, have an opportunity to express through through a format, through a mechanism. Right. So even at a young age, that storytelling was a big part of what you enjoyed. Yeah, I think both as uh, both as survival and as therapeutics. Right. And, and also as an escape. Right. Mm. Um, I, you know, there's uh, even now. Right. There's there are times in which you come upon a book that is so good that when it ends, you, you feel like you got like forcefully ejected out of that world. Mm. Right. And, and, and the feeling I have is like, I just want to crawl back into it. Right? Yeah. I just want to crawl back into this world that was constructed, this story that was so um, powerful. Right? So immersive, right? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think actually just reflecting on that, because obviously I'm, we're, we're talking, I'm in New Zealand and the Lord of the Rings was filmed here and it kind of brought to the screen, the books, you know, visually, but I yeah. still think in my imagination, the Lord of the Rings as a book was one that I immersed myself in, you know, as a teenager before the movies came out. And so in, in my mind, my, my pictures and my imagination and, you know, Aragorn and all these characters were so vivid and alive. It's that sort of experience, isn't it? To read a good book like that. hundred percent. Right. And, and, you know, something like that, right. Where there's trilogies and prequels, right. Like you get to live in that world for, for a really long time. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that, I think, I think when a story is well done, right. It's both an, an escape, right. From, from this reality. Right. But also like, I'm sure you identify with a character in it, right? If not multiples. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So are there books or worlds that you still go back to and they would be your favorites even from that sort of age? Is there? No. Um, I, I mean, I, I really I remember reading Little Woman quite a lot. Like I read that book multiple times. Um, I identify with like all but... I identify most strongly with Joe, right? She's the most like free spirit, independent mm -hmm. kid, um, you know, but I kind of liked all the sisters for their various, um, the thing that made them them, right? Yeah. Um, their, their kind of sense of independence in their own ways. Um, I remember reading the, the little princess where um, her dad drops her off at a boarding school basically. And, and then, and he goes on a trip somewhere, probably India, and then he doesn't come back and, right. and there's no more money. So the headmistress is like shoves her into the attic and now she has to work for the school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, like I remember that really resonated. So right. a lot of stories about, you know, and then yeah. later like Harry Potter, right? Like I was in my twenties when I read Harry Potter, but like Harry's experience of like living under the cupboard that, that kind of was how it felt to spend those years, um, those earlier years in America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like those first years were quite traumatic in many ways. <laughs> Coming back to the identity point, how did you introduce yourself at, at that point? If people ask you, would you say you were Chinese or Taiwanese or American or? Um, I would just say I was Chinese. That seemed like the, that seemed the easiest answer for Americans. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So you're getting to the end of your high school years. Did you know what you wanted to study or where you wanted to study? And yeah, what happened next? Take us through that. Um, I was really deep into theater when I was in high school. Um, I definitely felt like an outsider. Um, and, and somehow like that place felt okay. Right. Um, and uh, and I I loved it so much that I wanted to study it. So that was what I studied in uh, college. Mm -hmm. But I knew that was going to be a point of contention with my family, right? Both with my my now like adoptive family because my my aunt ended up adopting me for legal status. Okay. Um, which just further confused the identity issue, right? Like, mm. are you my mother? Or are you not my mother? Mm. Um, and, um, and also with like my real family, right. My, my mom and father back in Taiwan, um, mm -hmm. 
we were always told to, you know, study something practical. Right. So theater right. maybe wasn't ticking those boxes. <laughs> it was not, um, but I loved it and I was headstrong and I was going to do what I wanted to do and nobody was going to tell me otherwise. And so I did it. Um, and it took probably about another decade after I graduated with my theater degree for me to really appreciate that degree for what it was because I by the time by the time graduation rolled around I was pretty burnt out and and not a little bit bitter Mm. why was that it was really political the assignments and the castings and the and and by the time my inner my freshman year, I knew I didn't want to act, right? I wanted to direct, I wanted to write, I wanted to design things, right? right. And we were predominantly an acting school, so it meant that there was a lot of work to go around for non-actors. Um, but even then, it was still political, right? It was mm-hmm. about like who was whom's favorite. Right, I see. Right, and. And I was brought up on the idea of meritocracy, that if you're good, right, if you worked hard, if you're good, then you should win the prize. Mm. But that wasn't the practical experience of what you were seeing, it sounds like. <laughs> that was not the practical experience, right? And, and as, in, as in all things political, right, when they disguise themselves as something merit-based they never teach you how to play the politics Mm. as a matter of fact they excuse the politics and and want to deny that it exists Mm. it feels like a theme already is this idea of being an outsider kind of coming in like from taiwan to america and then in the theater world coming trying to get in but there being unwritten rules and ways things were done that were different than what you might expect Absolutely, right? Different rules and rules that people don't disclose. Mm. For sure. Yeah. So what, what happened next then? Um, I applied for grad school because that's what you do. Um, I applied for a master in fine arts in the theater arts. Um, but I was, again, having doubts because I was just really burnt out. I was overworked and I was tired. Um, and I also wasn't certain that three more years for a master's degree and however much you know money that was going to cost later was going to be was going to be a job guarantee, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm I'm starting to doubt this linear path business, right? So I uh, I made a bet with myself that if I got into NYU, which was my top choice, then I would go. But if I do not get into NYU and I get in elsewhere, then I would start my own business. Mm. Um, and I somehow totally bombed my NYU interview. <laughs> <laughs> so I did not get into NYU for, um, for my master's. And at that and, time, uh, did, you, did you know that you were burnt out? Or was it something that with hindsight, you look back and you realize? I'm always curious because lots of people listening to this as well, you know, some of us are working hard, you know, there's stuff happening and you can get so caught up in the rhythm of being constantly busy that you don't really reflect on maybe I'm at the edge here of, of getting burnt out and how, how can I take better care of myself? I, I definitely did not know I was burnt out. 
Mm. Right. I knew, I knew I was tired. I knew that I just, I was phoning a lot of it in. Right. But I also, it never occurred to me, like, I just needed to take some time and like sit on this. Mm. Right. It never occurred to me that like, maybe, um, you know, I should like wait as long as I can before I decide on grad school. Right. Or that I could take a year off before I apply to grad school. Right. right. Or that I could accept and defer. Right. Like any of those like kind of rational optionalities, like it never even occurred to me. Right. right. Like go at full speed was the only thing that like felt like was the thing to do. Mm. Right. And if I couldn't go at full speed, then at least like phone it in wherever I could. Mm. And, and at least go at like 90% of the speed and then just let the other 10% be phoned in. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I did not know that I was burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's important to, to highlight these things because sometimes, like I say, some people listening, you know, we just have to get in rhythms and, and ways that are healthy and that we're looking after ourselves as well as doing the work. Um, so it's, it's just good to be reminded, I guess. So you start your own business then. Is that what happened next? I did. Uh, I started my own business. Uh, I started a freelance photography business. Um, so I was learning photography all throughout my four years of college. And, uh, and I started a side business doing it. I was doing headshots for my actor friends. Um, and so I, and then I was, and I was cobbling together a photography classes out of basically our rival school okay um and uh, so I, I went to university of california and uh in ucla um university of california in los angeles was like our big rival school right like right. the and and the rivalry rivalry is well known so but i ended up taking my photography class from ucla so um that was always kind of funny to me um so i started a photography business Hmm. Um, and I really quickly transitioned out of doing actors headshots into doing advertising. Mm -hmm. I, one of the many things I wanted to be when I was little was I wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm -hmm. So I thought being a fashion photographer would be pretty close. So, uh, I started shooting advertising for fashion and then I spent the next decade doing advertising for fashion companies, um, luxury good companies, cars, cosmetics, celebrity work, because this is Los Angeles, um, and entertainment business related stuff. Um, and by the time my kind of 10 year stint in Los Angeles, that, that last 10 year stint was over, um, I was a creative director. Hmm. So, so what was that like? Cause there's an appearance from the outside of what that world is. Um, you know, devil wears, Prada sort of movie type of insights, but yeah, what, what was it like being part of it, I guess, and going to photo shoots and seeing people get dressed up and taking their photos? <laughs> um, I loved it. And part of me loves it still. And, and being the young 22 year old I was at the time there, I have certain culture critiques of it. Right. But the but the idealism and the naivete was that I could 
I could introduce these things to help shift the conversation, mm. right? Um, I was early, like my clients weren't interested, right? Whereas now, 20, 25 years later, like that's very much so part of the conversation, right? right? Representation and how we see beauty represented, the different kinds of body, the different kinds of ethnicity, the different kinds of people, the different mm-hmm. ideas of beauty, right? Like, like that's in vogue now, right? But like 20 years ago, like no client wanted to touch that, mm. right? So, so then you know my idealism met its, you know, uh, you know it was it was it was early. <laughs> There's um, a tension there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it it was fun. It was fun. It was a fun way to spend my twenties. Yeah. Well, I can imagine the satisfaction of seeing a photo that you took, you know, that that took hours to prepare and get the light and everything working. And then it's in a magazine or it's in an advertisement or something. That would be quite a a direct connection, I guess, because some some jobs you're kind of moving paper from this side of the desk to this side of the desk. uh, Whereas that is like more of a impactful, isn't it? It definitely is. Um, it definitely is. Um, and and had I had I just been satisfied with seeing, you know, the the advertising version of like my name in the limelights, right? Mm. Then then I think I would have been really happy with that. Um, I I just needed to go to that next order of magnitude, right? Like, what is this piece of advertisement actually saying to, you know, the people who's looking at it? Right. And what's its ultimate end. Right. Um, that's where that's where you get into trouble when you yeah. want to go to that. Like when you want to ask that next question. Right. Yeah. Letting your mind go there and, and thinking about the deeper cultural things that are going on and the young women who are opening these magazines and reading it and seeing an image portrayed. And yeah, I can see where that would eventually lead to a, a sort of a conflict, wouldn't it? Yeah, it definitely mm-hmm. did. So what, so what happened next then? Um, yeah. Uh, 2008 happened. Right. 2008 happened. Um, so now I'm 10 years in and have always been a freelancer. Mm-hmm. I've worked for myself. I've never worked for a company. And, and just given, you know, what the market worldwide was, like, there's no more work. Mm. Right? Like, like, we're the top line to get cut. Right. And, and even if Calvin Klein is going to run an ad, it's just going to be, you know, the logo and nothing else. I remember these right. black and white Calvin Klein ads, you know, double page spread in Vogue. And it was just, you know, Calvin Klein. Right. <laughs> you know, like we don't need photos. We don't need models. We don't need to demonstrate our goods. Like forget it. Right. Um, so the universe made my decision for me. Um, and I got divorced at the same time, which, um, you know, people always find it fascinating when I say this, but I think, I think everything ultimately worked out better because everything fell apart at the same time. I think if I still had like a thing, right. If I still have my marriage or if I still have my work, right. Like the, I don't know, the transformation just wouldn't happen as radical if you will. Right. Right. I, I think I, I think you would just hold on to that piece and then try to rebuild everything back to the thing that you knew before. I see what you mean. Yeah. So you'd cling to that one rock that was left and try to 
build on that as a foundation. Right. Mm. Like, or like, you know, um, a storm came and blew away half your house. Right. So you're like, okay, let's, let's fix the half that got, you know, blew away. Right. Mm. Versus like, Oh, well, the storm took away all your house. So I guess uh, here's something left. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and did your experience as an 11 year old, I'm, I'm always curious just to these linking moments in life, you know, cause that was hugely traumatic. Your parents divorce, you're moving country. You don't speak the language. Did you find that that experience provided some, I guess, something that you could reflect on now having grown up and going through these things all at once um, you mean in 2008? Yeah. Um, I think so. I mean, I, I think I was, I think I was, you know, again, traumatized at 30, right. And deeply heartbroken. Um, but you know, now you're a 30 year old woman, you know, with agency, right. Versus like an 11 year old child with no agency. Right. Um, so, so I think you deal with it differently. I think you, you process it a little bit differently too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that I remember that time I, I was working as well and it was kind of like Lehman brothers collapse and like all these things were going on. Um, yeah. How, how did you take the next steps and what did you get into? And I'm really keen to find out about hello future as well. So maybe start to bring us up to date in terms of what came next. Uh, well, I went on the road. I, I sold as much of my stuff as I could. I put the rest of it on a truck for New York City um, eventually. And and I spent most of 2009 on the road. 2010, I moved to New York City. And, and from 2010 to 2016, 2017, I was still on the road like six months out of the year, if not more. Mm. Um, I, I was finally unbound, right? And I could move to New York because that was always what I always wanted to do, right? Um, which is part of the reason why NYU was my top choice for grad school. Um, so, so I moved to New York City. I started a contemporary art gallery. We had it for about five years. I ran it with one of my best friends. That, that felt like the next move as someone who worked in the arts, right? Mm -hmm. So I've worked in the commercial arts. So now let's see what the next thing is in the fine arts. Um, I realized working in the fine arts wasn't for me. Um, and again, right, like the things I wanted out of that space and that industry like it just wasn't ready for it, right? Like I wanted to talk about issues. I wanted to talk about the the thing that these art was pointing at, right. right? And how can we start a conversation about the issues the art is pointing at instead of just art as the object or the decoration or the the status symbol, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But like 99% of the industry is as interested in the, that, right? Mm -hmm. And like the the thing the art is pointing at is just like, yeah, that's nice. Mm. Right. So, so you were kind of interested in the deeper story that led to the art and, and what it was highlighting within society, for example. Exactly. Um, and that was, that was our curatorial vision, right? Like we curated towards that, right? right. The work was always about something. Mm. So once we're done with that, the, um, I decided to move to Istanbul because 
now it's 2015, 2016, the Syrian refugee crisis has kind of hit its crescendo moment. I have been on, I've been to over 80 countries by now. Um, and I just love being on the world. I love, not only do I love being on the world, I love being a part of the world. Um, but I was also wanting to figure out how can I, how can I be stickier, right? How can I latch in deeper, right? And and not just latch in deeper, but like, what is a thing that I can, I, I can kind of influence, if you will, right? So the refugee crisis happened or it was happening. And I was like, well, let's at least move to Istanbul, right? Like, I love that place. Um, I have friends there. Let's see what I can learn there. And I originally thought that it was maybe a book I was going to write or a short film I was going to make something, you know, kind of back in my wheelhouse as a creator. Um, never thought it was going to be an educational nonprofit, which is what Hello Future is. Right. Um, but that, that turned out to be the thing. Hmm. It's really interesting to me, just your love of the, I guess the world, it sounds like you've, you've been in so many different places as well. And yet you kind of focused in on this place um, you know, yeah. Talk us through what, what was it that really resonated with you when you got to Istanbul? And I have this, uh, I have this thesis. I believe that, um, we're all refugees. I believe if we look beyond the geopolitical complexity of the refugee experience, right. Cause, cause that's a geopolitical designation, right. And if we look at, what that human experience is, what it feels like to be a refugee. Mm -hmm. They feel alone, stuck, and forgotten by the world, right? Then I think most of us can pinpoint to some point in our lives in which we felt that way, right? Whether because it's, you know, um, a divorce, a move, an end of a friendship, right? Like that feeling doesn't have to last long, right? But I dare you to find someone who doesn't know what those feelings are. Right. Right. And, and so then, you know, all of us a little bit, right. Feels like we're outsiders looking in, feels mm -hmm. like we don't belong here. Right. Um, I think, I think there's lots of pieces out there talking about how all of us feels like imposters, right. Or how rampant imposter syndrome is. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think it's, I think that's speaking the same ethos, right. That I don't belong. Right. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure you see the through line now, right, like all of this echoes way back to to, you know, to moving to Los Angeles, to to everything that I've experienced um, up to now. So. So I felt it, I felt it like just pull so hard at me in my heart, right, like even though. I'm Chinese American, right? I'm agnostic at best, if not like straight up atheist on some days, right? I, so I have no obvious connection to the Middle East, mm -hmm. right? But, but I, I felt their experience. Like I know what that feels like, right? And, and, and I want to say that without diminishing any of what, diminishing any of their experiences, right? Cause they're, I, I think the, I think the thing with a refugee experience is that they experience it on a prolonged timeline, right? Versus yeah. like, you know, some of us are lucky enough to only experience it in, in short spurs, 
Mm. Right. So, so that was why I was drawn to the work or with that story. Right. And then, and then the question becomes real quickly, like, is the most good that I can do in creating a thing, right? Whether the thing be a book or a film or whatever that kind of creative endeavor is. And, and as much as like, I've spent, you know, 40 years of my life being a maker, being a creator in these medias, I, there was something at the time that felt like I was taking it from them. Right. So let's say it's, let's say I interview a bunch of families, right. And they share their, they share their traumas with me. Right. And, and I take that and I, and I turn it into a beautiful thing. Right. And, and you watch it, right. And, and, and a million other people watch it or read it. Right. And, and I might tug out your heartstrings, but, but how has that changed the families whom gave me that story to start with? Mm. Right. And, and so, and, and that didn't quite feel right. Mm. Right. Again, which is not to say that like they're, that these stories and these medias that's created out of like isn't valuable, right? And I think I think I would love to make a documentary film. I would love to write a book. I would love to write many books, right? I I still love these mediums and I think they're deeply important. But for me personally at that time, as as someone who's made things for public consumption for decades now, right, that didn't feel right. Mm. And, and I wanted to know what else is there. Mm. And it turned out was like teaching. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I can teach you how to tell this story. Right. That's really interesting. I want to just highlight two things that really stood out to me. The first is that we all probably have some sort of an experience of being a refugee, because I think you're right. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, that's, that's those people over there, or that's something that's a problem in that part of the world. But the reality is, I agree with you, everybody has gone through something that's, that's led to a similar type of trauma. Not the same, though, but um, I guess it gives us an ability to connect with others as humans. And that's, I get the sense that's what really connected you as you know, Chinese-American, but going there and feeling connected with them and their experience, even though their world was completely different to what you had known. Um, yeah. And then the second thing is, I think you're right. Sometimes it is too easy to commoditize other people's stories as a, you know, a consumer offering, I guess. And you do have to be careful about that. I know with this podcast, I often am, have to ask myself, why am, why am I interviewing this person? Or am I taking advantage of it in some way to, you know, indirectly tell their story in a way that promotes the podcast, you know, like just being completely open and honest. And, and you do have to ask that question as a maker, as a creator, I think all the time, don't you, to, to stay true to allowing the authenticity of the story, um, but that it's their story rather than somehow becoming your story. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, and I think, I think in something like the refugee crisis, right. Where, where that, that, that sense of consciousness is just even more heightened, right? Because they're, mm. they're, they're deeply disadvantaged at this moment, 
right? So so they're never even on the same playing field, right? Whereas like this conversation of you and I are having, right? Like I'm yeah. offering you my story willingly, yeah. right? And so so I feel like the the dynamic is a little bit different mm-hmm. than than you know in the middle of a crisis and you know and yeah you you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah, but then also what you said, you know that for some of us, it will just have been a short thing that happened and it's gone. And I think the difference is for a refugee, particularly someone who's been forced from their home that they knew as a child that they had to leave because of war, famine, whatever it is, you know, um, on the podcast, I interviewed a friend of mine named Simon um, Bonianshuti from Rwanda. So he left, I think he was 15 when the genocide was happening and he literally ran out the door with the codes. He didn't have his passport, nothing. And his family ran down the road with bullets flying. They somehow made it out. And he's never, ever gone back. He, he never went home, you know, back to that place. Yeah. He lives here in New Zealand now. And his whole life has been shaped by that experience of being now from Africa, living in New Zealand. You know, we've got snow here. You know, it's just completely different to what his childhood was like but it's flowed through his entire life. Um, he's a little bit like it sounds like you. He's been very proactive and made a life for himself here, which is a beautiful thing. And he's got kids and he's happy and it's wonderful. But that refugee experience has informed everything. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what's happening today and if people are interested, sort of, yeah, what, what is going on right now? So uh, Hello Future is entering its sixth year. Um, I spent 2016 in the field doing research um, before I created the before I created the nonprofit. Um, and I piloted in 2017, spent 2018 raising money before we went back out there for our second iteration in 2019. Um, and since then, we haven't stopped programming. Um, what I learned in the field was a couple of really interesting things. Um, first being that there's the least amount of programming available for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I don't have children of my own, I still, um, I can still really like call recall all those like teenage years and, and how difficult that was. Um, you know, being someone who feel like they didn't belong, being from somewhere else, right. And, and all the things that comes with it. Right. And then being able to look back and see, what are the skills that I had that allowed me to make a life for myself? Mm. Right. Like what really served me? It wasn't trigonometry, (laughs) you know? Um, And uh, so the first thing was that teens were deeply underserved, but I think they're the, I think they're very, they're a high risk group, right? Like um, the choices are pretty stark. Right. Mm. Um, and the second thing that we learned was that there was a need for digital literacy, not as in like ITC skills, right? ITC skills is more like this is a mouse and this is a keyboard and this is how you like input information, right? Digital literacy is more complex, but it seemed to be more simple because everybody just assumes that if you are, you know, under 20, you automatically know digital literacy. Right. There's... Digital literacy is complex because it actually inherently involves media literacy, right? And media literacy is a whole complexity of itself. Um, 
So just because a teen can like get on TikTok and make a TikTok video, it doesn't mean that they have all the prerequisite kind of critical thinking skills, right? And the kind of the the kind of a sense of protection guardrails that you and I as adults would have up, right? Like, is this is this a real email? Is this a scam, right? Like, should I share this thing? You know, should I, right? Any of those things um, that you and I will kind of audit as adults, like the teens don't have experience in. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then the difference between, you know, having digital literacy and basic digital skills versus not for refugee teens was, the difference between, you know, being eligible for an entry-level office job versus, you know, inconsistent manual labor, right? Um, so, so we can start seeing how that would make a really big difference in somebody's life. Um, so we started teaching, and then the program evolved. We still do digital literacy and digital basics. That's a foundational piece of what we do. Yeah. But, um, but we ended up baking in a lot of what's now called um, 21st century skills, Mm-hmm. Um, and 21st century skills like comes in like three big buckets um, life skills learning skills and literacy skills and literacy skills extends anything from like financial literacy to media literacy to you know digital literacy um, the life skills include things like collaboration creativity um, there are a lot about like character if you will mm-hmm. um, so so we built out a, a set of curriculum that is that I think are are essential, right? If I if I were to go back and say, what are the things that really like on a functional day to day that a person needs to know, right? So now our full course of offering starts with digital literacy and digital skills, um, financial literacy, storytelling for marketing and advocacy, and then systems design. Mm-hmm. And, at, um, and it culminates in a small business incubator for refugees, which we're really excited to pilot um, this fall. Hmm. Wow. So it's quite a, quite a range of skills and things that you're teaching them. And do you find um, reflecting back on your own experience, you know, I, I'm always curious about these journeys and, and what people have learned in their lives. Are there principles and things that you're trying to get across that reflecting on your experience as an 11 year old that that you think would help them adapt and and be resilient going forward that's a great question um you know i i think of my i think of my journey so far as more is both a a creator and an entrepreneur right Mm -hmm. So a lot of the course design was was derived out of like if I had to condense an MBA program, right, and I had to bring you all the skills that you would possibly need, right, not to like run a you know a tech giant like Facebook, yeah. right, but just like a small business, right, like a couple of people operating, you know, like what would those things be, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so that's how the course is designed. That's how we thought about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think communication and effective communication is, is central, right? And, and in the process of teaching our kids how to communicate, 
and how to think, right? How, how do you tease out your idea and structure in a way that somebody else can understand, right? And that's effective. Um, that's, that's a whole skill set that'll last you a lifetime, right? And, and in the efforts of teaching that, we end up fostering their sense of confidence, mm. right? And, and that sounds, and if you think about it, like, of course that makes sense, right? Like if you can communicate, if you're confident in how you can communicate, mm. then you would be a little bit more confident. Mm. Right. I'm just thinking even, you know, your experience of being in the ESL classes and things and kind of feeling stuck there and how can you get out to then get the opportunity? I, I just can't even imagine being in a refugee camp and being a young person and maybe being in a new country or another place or, you know, there's just so much going on. Um, there's so many barriers that are being erected there that are preventing them potentially from getting out to then get jobs and develop, you know, stability. Absolutely. Right. And, and I'm not, I'm not one to wade into, you know, the, the deeps of international policy or humanitarian aid. Right. I think, I don't think I have the temperament for it, Mm. but, um, but I can teach them skills that will help them, right. To go advocate for themselves, you know, to, to say your sense of ingenuity is Mm -hmm. fantastic. Now let's foster it. Mm-hmm. Right. How can we use your sense of ingenuity to help you create a pathway forward? Mm. That's really good. I was just on the website and in, in the links, we'll put a link to the Hello Future website so people can click and find out more. Um, but it was really interesting to, me to your, your advisory board and the people who are involved. There's at least 15 names that I'm seeing here and all of them seem to have amazing like quite different backgrounds, but seem united in this cause. Is it, that's probably accurate, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I would not have been able to do this work without, with all, all the people that supports me in it, mm. you know, um, named or unnamed on our site, right? We, in the last, you know, five years, we run 100% on donations, also mm-hmm. all private donors. And, uh, and again, right, like I, I wouldn't have been able to do this work and we wouldn't have been able to reach the the students we've been able to reach in the field without it. Mm. Well, on the website, I can see that there's links to photos of a virtual reality tour of the refugee camp. And there's a lot of information. If people are interested to dive deeper, they'll be able to get that. So we'll definitely link to this. Um, And is there ways that people are listening who want to find out more? I guess the website would be the best place and reach out to you if they want to talk. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've, you know, structured out a few different um, ways of um, for, you know, listeners everywhere to kind of participate. Um, There's a, there's variety of events that we hold that we seek external judges, right. um, To, to judge, um, a lot of our mutual friends even have served as judges um, and and it's such an important thing, right? Like it's super simple, right? So if you were to judge a contest, you would you would look at the the project they created, you know, the kind of the framework that they exist in, and you would evaluate it. And after the evaluation, you would record um, a feedback video, right? You'd be like, "Hi, team, future. This is what I thought of your project." Right. Right. And you would tell them what you thought. And the and we play them for the teams. 
to know that their their projects were viewed by someone that they don't know halfway across the world mm. and and you being you with the job that you have and you took them seriously and you took the time to mm. to really like pay attention and to look and then to tell them what your thoughts are like it's so tremendous for these kids mm. and it makes them hold their head up a little bit higher it makes them feel like they're not forgotten by the world mm. right even though you might never meet these students mm. but they're gonna be like this guy Stephen, who's a warrior in New Zealand they like looked at my work and like told me what I thought and like yeah. I can't believe somebody like him would look at my work yeah and and how much value add that is for that kid for that team mm. it's tremendous that's cool well sign me up I'm happy to participate in something like that that, that sounds like it would be quite fun and a way to yeah. <clears throat> really input into people yeah the thing I love about this sort of initiative as well is that you know you're dealing with 14 to 18 year olds you may not see immediate results but I, I just love the idea that in 10 years time, you'll get an email from someone who says that program changed my life, you know, and that's such a, a beautiful thing. It's not about the, you know, the monetary reward in the next quarter. It's nothing like that. It's more the, the impact that you're having on somebody's journey that, that will stretch then on for decades to come. That's really cool. Absolutely. Right. Or the fact that like you said, you said the right thing at the right time and that was just the thing they needed to hear. Mm. Right. And that it made them feel like that, that the world needs them. Right. Yeah. That they're not, they're, they're not a throwaway person. Right. Which I think mm. is how some, some refugee policies ends up seeming right. Like they're not, they're just a throwaway and they're yeah. not. Yeah, well, um, most most of the listeners of this podcast are based in New Zealand because I'm based here. Um, but I yeah. think we had the the shootings in Christchurch um, now uh, uh, coming up. Yeah, it's been a while now, but it really highlighted the different communities that exist within New Zealand. And I think it kind of people had to open their eyes a bit more than they had in the past to realize there's this whole network of people that are kind of under the radar and we've kind of ignored and deliberately not really taken an effort to get to know them. So based here in Christchurch, it's been fascinating because I, I work in with lots of charities and sometimes helping them set up. And there's been at least three or four that I've helped in the last sort of year who are all focused on this. How can we bridge the gaps between the Kiwis and the refugee migrant communities who've come into New Zealand? So yeah, it's, it's a Absolutely. need in the camps. It's a need, but it's also a need once people end up in a country with that integration into the, you know, into that country and need some friendly people there to help them. For sure. Um, and, and one of the things in, you know, us learning in the field and, and having been working on this program for, you know, six years plus now is that we see, we see the educational need and the developmental needs in, in our students that our students have echoed in other communities, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the Maori community, for example, right? Or here in the U.S. in the, in the kind of the low-income underserviced community, mm. right? Um, so what we're hoping to do um, is to pilot our program 
in in a in a in a in completely different context, right? Whether it be in um, you know with Lily in Tolonga Bay, or um, or elsewhere in New Zealand, or elsewhere in the U.S. Um, uh, to to see how we can you know help create just a better pathway for these young people. Yeah. Oh, that's really awesome. Well, I'll watch it with interest and yeah, I'd love to get involved more. So this has been a great conversation. At least you've got one recruit. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Can I ask a question as well? You know, we're, we're, the reason I think we probably connected was through Edmund Hillary Fellowship. How did that get on your radar and what has that meant to you to, to join in? Um, so I was introduced to the Edmund Hillary uh, Fellowship by Andrew Hoppen who's also a fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew and I have been friends long before, which is why he was like, hey, there's this thing. And um, and I'll just be blunt, because um, I see no reason why not to tell the truth. Um, when Andrew was applying and he asked me what my thoughts were, I was slightly incredulous. I was like, this seems like a really big promise, but to base camp it out of New Zealand seems kind of weird, right? Because at the time the website says something about like solving the world's greatest problem from New Zealand. Right. I was like, New Zealand has so many great things going on, mm. right? And and I had just, you know, probably a year before that, I had just spent a year in the field, right? And I was like, you have to be in the field to understand what the actual context is if you're trying to solve the problem. So how can you solve the world's greatest challenges from, you know, a place like New Zealand where, you know, there's so many great things going on for it, Mm. right? Comparatively to elsewhere, right? So I was like, don't do it. But he did it anyways. Um, And then a few cohorts later, he invited me to apply and I was like, well, I'm really interested to see what would happen if I get to meet other people who are like-minded, right? Who are interested in, mm-hmm. in creating impact um, and, and really doing the kind of good work that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was the appeal to me, mm-hmm. right? The, the GIV was less of a thing. Yeah. It, it, was, it was the impact piece. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. No, it's always just good to hear why people have joined. And that, that's the, I think that's the perfect motivation to connect with like-minded people and others who are about impact and purpose. And I've certainly found that's been the case. And um, yeah, I, I think we've also connected around um, the, the work stream around um, skills and, and what people can do or, or what they bring to their work and, and can offer to other people. And I've, I've really appreciated your leadership of that work stream. You know, there's a whole group of people involved in it, um, but it's been awesome to see different ideas and different ways of doing things. And um, one of the things that I, I've noticed is that you have a really a, a strong sense, probably the strongest sense I've ever seen of somebody having a democratic approach to making decisions. Like during calls, you'll say, what do we think? Let's have a vote. Where do you think that comes from? <laughs> Funny you say that. Um, I have to say that, like, that's not my natural tendency. Right. Right. And and that's been, like, I think you want to kind of just parse, like, my career trajectory, right? Like, I've always run my own shop, mm. right? Like, I've collaborated with others all the time, right? We collaborate all the time. Mm. But but agency is very much so something that I I need and deeply 
like hold on to, mm. right? Um, so I find the democratic process to be laborious, right? Mm. But I'm deeply fascinated and smitten by the idea of decentralization, right? Which is part of like EHF is this kind of ethos as well, or um, and and I believe in a democratic government and a government in a process, right? Yeah. So, so when we're talking about there's this many of us and there's no de facto like person in charge, right? Then then I think we have to kind of lean into that democratic process, right? Even though I as a person find it to be just really slow. Yeah. Right. No, I, and, I like it. I, I think it's great. I, I lived in Japan for five years. And in Japan, it's very much a consensus making culture. You find out what everybody thinks in the room, and then you weigh up what's happening. And, and then you make a decision. Um, so I, I like it. It's just, yeah, it was, it's just curious to me. So that's really good. Uh, well, what we'll do is put yeah. in the show notes links to everything that we've talked about. So afterwards, if you can email me anything you want, really, we can add it in and then people can click through. But yeah, thank you so much for your time, Charlie. It's been fascinating. I, I love these conversations because if I just asked you, tell me about Hello Future and you told me about the refugee camps and the work that you're doing, I just feel like we would have not had the depth of understanding what is it that would have motivated somebody to want to help young people who are feeling displaced. And now having heard your life story, you know, we can easily connect the dots here <laughs> because you yourself went through similar experiences as a young person. So I just want to thank you for your time, for your openness and sharing and have really enjoyed our chat and look forward to continuing to collaborate and work with you in the future. Likewise. Thank you so much, Stephen. I love this conversation. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charlie. I know for me there were several things that stood out, in particular just how her early years had informed who she is and how she relates with these refugees today. Make sure you check out the show notes and the links in there if you want to find out more. Until next time!